0: Lato Bar Varada
1: Nick
0: <coughs> Nick <coughs> Welcome to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host Anthony Tyler and if you didn't get that reference um uh, I'm I'm sorry for you. Anyway, thanks for joining me. Um we're here on the Fringe FM. You know the usual stuff. Check out my books, my website divemind.net. I got a new UFO documentary that I'm going to be featured in. It's called The Experiences from UAP to DMT. You can go check out that trailer on YouTube there. Um, I don't know, um, really, what else I got in terms of announcements. Oh yeah, okay. So I shouted out the Peruvians uh, last episode for putting me in the top ten of the philosophy section of Apple Podcasts in Peru uh, for the whole, like, release I've done so far. Every episode stayed in the top 10. Might have dropped to 12 or something like that. But after my shout-out last episode, um, I dropped to, like, 20. Thanks a lot, Peruvians. You really dropped the ball there. (laughs) I'm joking. I don't really care. Um, But still, still... What's up with that, man? I figured, uh, you know, calling attention to something, it either increases it or fizzles the whole thing out, so, alright, alright, lesson learned. Okay, let's get into shit today. We're gonna talk about paranormal activity. A 21st century demonology 101, if you will. Poltergeist, possession, standard hauntings, we're gonna talk about a little bit of all of that. And uh, this is going to be very much uh, the crossroads between superstition and unexplainable phenomena and, you know, actual empirical sciences. We're going to get into some pretty serious um, meaty food for thought here. And we're going to get into some stories as well. Uh, We're going to talk about the Church Street poltergeist. We're going to talk about the Ernie Rivers poltergeist. um, And we'll probably talk about the uh, exorcism of Annalise Michelle. These are bits, uh, these are stories that I have mentioned elsewhere before, um, but this is going to be an opportunity for me to get into a little bit more uh, detail about them and flesh this out. And I like bringing up these three stories because uh, they have some of the most, not only are they extremely compelling, but they have such an overwhelming amount of data. And some people say, why and these aren't like exactly super well-known stories either the story of annalise michelle i mean that became the inspiration for the exorcism of uh emily rose so that's a bit more that's a bit more well-established but um these other two stories while they've have a lot of documentation and received a lot of attention at their time they are a little bit unsung uh today uh, just in the sort of get lost the needles in the haystack of everything else going on. Um but so people will say oftentimes why are we still talking about this story in particular? You know, so many people know the you know like take Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, the people that inspired the the, the Conjuring movies. Um they the reason that stories sometimes stick around is because they've just kind of been promulgated by the media machine uh, for dollar signs. Uh, Amityville Horror, which is something that the the Warrens worked on, being a good example, I don't put much stock into that story, although I, I do find it uh, fascinating from like a horror standpoint. Um, there are other stories that are continuously kicked around. like Both the story is going to be from 1970 and the other one during the 1960s. It's like, why don't we have more updated stories? Well, there are more updated stories, um, and those are things I talk about sometimes. You know, um, my, my buddy Chaz of the Dead, you know chazofthedead.com, just go right over to his website. You can find some of his material on the Fringe FM website. Um, he talks about more current poltergeists. Um, there are plenty of people, but there are some stories that just have so much meat behind them that... Uh, that in and of itself for record keeping is fascinating and also the fact that um, um, the especially in these two ex- uh, cases I'm going to bring up everyone was so everyone was so consistently unwilling and nervous about any sort of attention um, that brings a lot of uh, that gives them a, a bit of storytelling clout so to speak especially when it's just really truly authentic and um. With all the this record-keeping, these stories have withstood the test of time. They haven't cracked even a bit. So, these stories are irrefutable as far as I'm concerned. So let's get into it a little bit. Um, but first, let's set the stage briefly. Uh, other people will have heard me talk about this before. If you're familiar with my work at all, you'll probably have heard me talk about this. But this is crucial uh, stage setting here. we got to talk about... Phantom limb syndrome and sleep paralysis. This is 21st century demonology 101 right here. So hopefully, most people listening are familiar with just the general basic premise of Carl Jung and his idea of archetypes and projection. How we, um, in that uh, the in the way that VS Ramachandran and even you know people like Richard Dawkins explain how we. Map the outside world with symbols that are already intrinsic to our psyche, you know, uh, foundational to uh, just how we process our sensory data and experiences on an empirical level. Um, You know, these things, our experiences, the raw data of our experiences has to be processed by the conscious mind in some way and that ultimately through um evolutionary as as evolutionary psychology lays out very clearly um, this is done through exchanges of symbols so these exchanges of symbols are very crucial to understanding this conversation uh, because this is going to be one major part of it but then we're also going to actually examine The legitimate unexplainable aspects of these things as well and see and we're gonna see really where the crossroads of these two subjects coalesce so firstly phantom limb syndrome uh, being well let's start with sleep paralysis Uh, if people are really interested in sleep paralysis I've only experienced it a couple times myself that was when I was a kid So I know the feeling, Uh, I don't know the recurring terror of being, of not knowing how to solve it or to get rid of it. Um, I know those existential horrors in other ways, but sleep paralysis, not the one that um, that has made my cup overfloweth. But I've talked to a lot of people who have experienced it, and so firstly... You know, VS Ramachandran has also done quite a bit of work into sleep paralysis and understanding the role that mirror neurons play, and it's very much in a sort of layman's terms. It's the bodily map, the sensory map, data map um, of your body, of your the brain's image of your body, right? Um, it's a it's a sensory nervous system um, that sort of intermingles with actual mirror neurons like understanding your spatial awareness and your uh like your your nervous system awareness in relation to everything else and when you're going to sleep um that is going to be shut down you know you're going to go into um, a paralysis wave of sleep which is natural but due to certain things which often uh, essentially amount to pressure uh jams, overflows in the, uh, the, the subject's central nervous system, whether that be, uh, recurring trauma uh, uh, that's unprocessed, you know, any psychologist will tell you that, um, someone that's dealing with enough of repressed trauma can be just as crippled in, um, in, in, in ways that someone can be from like a car accident, you know, and, obviously they're not going to have like a limp or something but someone could come across just as exhausted and defeated and battered uh, because of psychological trauma most certainly and uh, so either one of these things if you're just experiencing some trauma that has a little bit of a, uh, like a an angle of terror I mean it all does but I guess you can make the case that some trauma is just hard to deal with more so than explicitly terrifying and it does seem that sleep paralysis has a little bit more of a creepy angle to it in that regard I don't really come across I I come across people saying that the the sleep paralysis shadow people are neutral sometimes but I never come across them being overtly good and there's a lot of carryover as I've talked about before with uh, the sleep paralysis phenomena and um you know, alien abductions. Now a lot of people would um, you know, turn their nose up at that and probably just get really heated um if they're really diehard nuts and bolts ufologists. But I'm of the opinion, as we'll get into or as will have been explained a bit more by the end of this episode, that sleep paralysis is a bit more than just the basic science as well. So I do think that there's something extra going on here but I don't think it's aliens and I don't think it's the classical demons either um but this is something we'll have to unpack more and more so what we can see here though is that there is when the body is going through this uh these different traumas um we reach a certain snowball effect in the sleep process where uh our sleep process gets jammed, and even though we enter a, a the, our physical body enters a, a sleep paralysis state, a natural one, the, the brain and the nervous system are doing different things, and things become disoriented, and you start projecting your, your bodily map elsewhere. Um, it's a real malfunction of the system. And so, and all that science, that's cogent, that makes sense, and it's true, it's empirical. But that's just the beginning, really, because when you look into things like poltergeist and possession, especially, and even like more classical ghost hauntings, sleep paralysis is always. I would damn near say always, but like nine times out of ten, um, a a very integral, uh, tone setting feature. It's always at the. It's it's something that helps kickstart a lot more paranormal activity and it's also something that helps maintain a certain level of intensity during the rash of paranormal activity and it seems to note some sort of conduit you know if someone is experiencing sleep paralysis during paranormal activity it does seem to uh, suggest that that person is the focus right fairly obvious but still worth mentioning but is everyone that experiences sleep paralysis experiencing paranormal phenomena? No. No, because we just broke down the science there. So a lot of the times it's just that science and it's just in this more psychological Jungian sense, us um trying it's almost like the uh the body sending out signal alarms. Um, in a way. It's the cup overfloweth with trauma and so the overflowing are these alarms and it's it's sleep paralysis and it's um hallucinations are definitely signs that not just you need better sleep but um shadow work no pun intended and i'm not being cheeky there i mean it very very genuinely it's time for some shadow work uh and and no fault of your own no fault of your own at all everyone's got to go through it at some point and it manifests itself in different ways for different people. So that that's sleep paralysis in a nutshell to start out with. Phantom limb syndrome um, is something that, first off, you don't have to be an amputee to experience phantom limb syndrome. You can actually be born without limbs and experience it. So it's something genetic and evolutionary. the The body has this sensory map. Um, at like integrated into its human brain, into how we process things, and when you don't have them, um, it could leave gaps. and And so, when people oftentimes, when they have phantom limb, as many of you know, they experience a stiffness. Uh, they they experience first off a limb, um, in, in the place where there shouldn't be, and they experience a cold stiffness, almost as if they have a dead, inanimate like rigor mortis limb attached to them is truly what it sounds like and it sounds uncomfortable and painful tense tight itchy clammy very weird very strange um and especially since you you can be born without them that part always sticks with me um but so as I've mentioned before V.S. Ramachandran figured out that in most cases um he, he found that by creating this this mirror box uh, of angles he could reflect a person's intact limb into the place where their limb was missing and found that if they moved the reflection they experienced a uh, full relief they knew what was happening they were not being tricked on a conscious level but their unconscious mind the very biology of their brains was being tricked and they found significant relief they found the animation of their limb took all that cold stiffness um, and and really brought them relief. And over time, many patients said that like going to the gym, um, the more they did it, the more their phantom pain would go away. And oftentimes their phantom limb would shrink. And in one case in the book, um, that uh, Phantoms in the Brain... Vyas Ramachandran talks about a man that through exercises managed to shrink his phantom limb until it just became little fingers coming out of his shoulder. And that was the genuine sensations that he experienced. But at that point, he couldn't figure out angles to get his fingers up to his shoulder to continue to shrink the limb, so he just had to stick with it like that. But he said thank you to the doctor anyway. He said these weird phantom fingers are better than a whole phantom appendage, so... Great work. That is weird. These are books in, or these are studies done in neuroscience. This is not some Native American shaman here. Uh, but it sounds like some like rain dance, shaky sticks shamanism. You know what I'm saying? We're going to talk about some stories now that I've already mentioned. And I think you're going to see how quintessential all this legwork is that we've been talking about with also the the asterisks that um it's just been such a recurring theme throughout all of modern paranormal investigation especially with poltergeists and um possessions that these things often focus around adolescence poltergeists more so than anything and with cases of possession uh it's not like you find those in a majority of adolescents but you find, I would say, probably half, like an, an overwhelming portion of the statistics is adolescent. And with poltergeist, you have just an overwhelming majority at large being adolescent. Um, children going through puberty, you know, first starting um, or going through the biggest throes of it, uh, very much carry from uh, or, or written by Stephen King esque. Uh, you know, that's where he got the idea. So uh, we're going to talk about the Church Street poltergeist first. Okay, in St. Catharines, Canada, like a little less than 20 miles outside of Niagara Falls on Church Street in an apartment that um, for, I think it's closed now, but for the longest time afterward was a pizza place. Um, 1970, the Page family starts talking with a police officer uh, that... Um, I've heard that the Page family called him and I've also heard that he visited because of a different call and then um, the Page family got a hold of him. Either way, regardless, the only reason the Page family started talking to him was because he was there and um, they they had just moved in and they'd only just like finished unpacking. They'd only been in for less than two weeks or so um, and... Strange phenomena had started to occur. And it was focused around their 11 year son, Peter. Now, not quite going through puberty yet, but definitely in the beginning stages um, or gearing up to it. And also, this doesn't have to be centered around puberty, but uh, the real puberty in and of itself is like a total upgrade of the body and the central nervous system. So, this all really stems from my whole spiel there about trauma and the nervous system and the cup overflowing. Um, And that just being the beginning of the trail and us not fully knowing where it leads from there. So officer Crawford, by the end of this, there are six officers that uh, would claim to witness paranormal events, including the family's lawyer, a local priest and other clergy um, like doctors and innumerable friends and family. Um, And this also, um, at one point this was we'll get into the phenomenology a little bit, but I'll set the stage a little more. Uh, that seems to be like a phrase I love saying now I gotta stop'm <laughs> stage setting over here. Um, so this was uh, like a 28 day event. It stopped as abruptly as it started and uh, it baffled everyone and the police even, uh, came in with a whole group of people. In fact, a lot of the people I just mentioned in that list there were part of this little group that came in to uh, do audio and video recording. And this is in 1970s, so this was a lot of equipment. This was a whole ordeal. And it was all tucked away with a police report uh, that eventually was uh, leaked to, or not eventually, pretty quickly, um, was accidentally leaked to the press somehow. I don't know the details on who did that. I don't know if anyone really knows but uh and then it became the classical definition of a media circus uh, you know um, uh, uh, reporters trying to dress up in disguises to get into the house of the people um people in droves outside trying to get a look at any sort of crazy phenomena doctors researchers coming uh, but the family wanted none of this they wanted no attention other than they wanted their lawyer, they wanted some doctors to try and understand the situation, and they wanted the police to document it. So what happened during these 28 days? Well, quite a bit. And we'll start by reading a quote from um, the sergeant of uh, the police report and who um, oversaw this investigation. Again, this is straight from the police report, which um, this, uh, like the official... Uh, report that I'm reading from here was not released until decades afterward but there were the other leaks so after witnessing unusual things taking place I contacted Mr. Bradley the building inspector we both agree that the causes of these weird occurrences were in no way connected to the actual building structure itself my only solution to these occurrences is that the boy Peter whom all these occurrences surround has been inhabited by a spirit of a poltergeist Briefly, the boy can't sit on a chair without being thrown off, and items are hitting him for no apparent reason. I, the writer, witnessed the boy being thrown on at least a dozen dozen occasions, including while I was there with Officer Crawford. Now, so that's just the beginning. We'll read more uh, here. The the poltergeist phenomena fits a standard set of phenomena, uh, rules of thumb. There's things being thrown, there's weird knocks, there's things being smashed, uh, things being flipped, there's, you know, sleep paralysis and weird things oftentimes. Um, In the case of Peter's family, uh, they actually reported warping and, like, bending, undulating walls, like fixed walls, like drywall with sheet and everything, and the, the paranormal phenomena would just... Abandon and warp the physics uh, almost as if something was trying to get out of the wall um, you know they're like heavy furniture would be flipped over on top of the child in front of lots of people in such a way that would like flip out from under him and land directly on top of him, like not even ways physically possible even if the kid had managed to want to do that on purpose um, what else uh, the, the officers um talk about how whenever the kid would walk through the halls of the of the apartment um the the pictures on the wall the framed pictures would swing and wag like a dog wagging its tail to to see its master come home so that's weird and that's also a very curious way to describe that too um priests noticed um beds and furniture being moved around too um and on one particularly powerful occasion um, officers, uh, friends, and family, uh, some of which were actually sitting on this heavy Chesterfield sofa, all witnessed this sofa levitate uh, roughly 18 inches off the ground for roughly 10 seconds. Uh, all of them saw this uh, for an, uh, you know, an elongated period of time. And there was an officer both sitting on the sofa and watching. So, this is crazy stuff, and. It, you know they they checked out they they thoroughly investigated all aspects of the building, uh, to make sure that there was nothing structural about any anything going on here. But uh, quickly that just became more standard procedure than anything because these guys with these officers, once you see things like this, uh, there's no amount of broken pipes that are going to explain the situation. Uh, and people also start looking into geomagnetic activity. Potentially, are we sitting on some sort of electromagnetic hotspot? Um, no, nothing like that. No, like weird bodies of water running underneath them that could carry like powerful metaphysical or like bioelectrical currents, uh, which is something that's talked about with with these kinds of things. Um, and like. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned it already. I definitely mentioned the media circus part, but I don't think I mentioned that it made its way all the way to Johnny Carson. And if I did, well, now you probably won't forget that for sure. <laughs> uh, so this was a big deal, and the family did not want any sort of attention. Never have, never will. The remaining um, people um, that uh, the remaining people alive in this family still do not want to talk about it. Uh, there has been research conducted on it, and some of these officers have gone on to talk about it a little bit. But these officers, also for the record, this family is where, well, first off, is very, they're not known to be into, they're definitely not like Ed and Lorraine Warren. And they're not showmen. They're very quiet, regular people that want to keep to themselves. And these officers are very hard-nosed, genuine long time officers in these communities with established reputations for being good people and also not being interested in any of this stuff they just stumbled across it okay so none of these people like showed up out of the blue and made fat media deals or anything like that which is what um, you can see a lot going on with the Amityville horror I don't know for sure that the Amityville horror was BS uh, or bullshit why am I even censoring myself but I'm pretty certain as are most people at this point this story however holds um, a lot of legitimacy and has uh, stood the test of time you could go find some of the uh the interviews with the police officers online you can also find this police report online and let's see we're gonna get into the break here fairly soon but before that you know I don't even think we're gonna get time to get into the uh the fine details of the possession of Annalise Michelle, but uh, we'll see. We're definitely going to talk about, uh, or the excuse me, the first recorded, um, the first uh, reported um, project housing poltergeist in America in the early nineteen sixties. Uh, a very also a very trippy story, and the reason I'm so fascinated with the Church Street poltergeist, or mostly, is because of the police documentation, uh, the Ernie Rivers story. It has a lot of documentation as well, not specifically related to the police, uh, but it also has a lot more backstory, a lot more insight. And so the the first story there was an interesting one you maybe uh, have not heard before to show you that these things are documented uh, more often than the skeptic might think. And this next story is really going to help articulate more than the first some of the mechanics of poltergeist phenomena and paranormal activity at large. Um, And also, you know, fun fact, I don't know how many people know this, but before we get into the break, uh, famous um, psychoanalyst Carl Jung, you know, the one to develop analytic psychology and the idea of archetypes. He actually was known to experience poltergeist phenomena, not directly, but some of his family while growing up. It was one of his cousins, I believe. And that's talked about um, at the very least by uh, researcher Colin Wilson, among others. Alright, we might as well jump into the break here. This is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. Uh, I hope everybody sticks with me through. We're going to talk about some pretty crazy shit after this.
1: Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at imdarkwaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at imdarkwaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dog Man Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, Even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman. Louisiana water demon stories. Sign up today and become a member at imdarkwaters.com. That's imdarkwaters.com. The Natural Born Alchemist podcast is a podcast that covers topics like alchemy, shamanism, psychedelics, anarchism and philosophy. Join Alex, that's me, and a multitude of guests on a quest to discover the nature of reality, of spirit and of consciousness. Each episode will also introduce you to new music that you might never have heard before. You can find the podcast on most platforms. Simply search for Natural Born Alchemist or go directly to naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll be able to find all the social media links as well. Freedom is in the mind. Listen. As we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, high strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential, Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on the Fringe FM.
0: From parapsychology to pop conspiracy, and from parapolitics to health and esoterica, I'm Ryan Gable, host of The Secret Teachings, and I'll bring you all of this and more five nights a week right here on The Fringe FM by using critical thinking and objectivity as keys to understanding, utilizing, and appreciating the secret teachings of all ages. You can catch The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday right here on The Fringe FM after Joe Rupp
1: and Lighting the Void. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard. And they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Do you want to escape the simulation? Well, join me, Jess Rogie, every week as we explore a variety of different realities to help expand our minds and find out a little more about this world we live in. Escape the simulation with me live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern here on the fringe.fm. Ahoy there, it's Gigi from Shift Happens, and you're listening to the one and only Fringe FM. Well, at least I'd imagine so. I'm not sure how else, uh, you know, you'd be hearing this.
0: Thanks for sticking with me through that break here, folks. This is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler, here on the Fringe FM. And let's dive right back into it, shall we? Uh, Before the break, we were leading up into talking about the Ernie Rivers poltergeist. Uh, Ernie Rivers is the first reported poltergeist in Project Housing. So, um, and it all uh, apparently started um, after his 13th birthday. And the sort of the classical things begin happening... Uh, in terms of in terms of um, things being moved, and, and there's knockings and shatterings, and there's one specific instance where um, Ernie's grandmother, uh, whom he lives with, and two of their neighbors or uh, people are just hanging out with in the apartment, um, see a perfume bottle. Actually not only fly across the room of its own volition but do what they call a jig like a really hard turn in front of everybody and then shatter so that's pretty weird and um you know the story of ernie in terms of his poltergeist activity is fascinating and well documented but also if you're familiar with poltergeist it's fairly standard um doesn't sound any less terrifying to experience, but it's the knockings and the throwings and the being shaken and all that, all that. I mean, that is what happens with a poltergeist. That's pretty much what you get. But, uh, the, like I said, the story of Ernie, um, and his context to it all is the most fascinating part now. And, and also, so before I get into Ernie, uh, as a person, I will say that, uh, this is another one that received so much uh, media attention eventually that, oh, what was their name? The Hermans, the people, uh, the family that experienced the poltergeist that became the inspiration for the movie Poltergeist. Um, their poltergeist was called Popper because it was always popping things off, like highly pressurized things that weren't shaken up or anything like that. And that was just one of the things that was the most notable. So the Hermans actually, uh, the mother... Uh, of the family wrote a note to Ernie and his grandmother once they started receiving more media attention you know just being very nice and telling them to remain strong and um, that she's like praying for them Um, so that's sweet but that also shows you uh, the level that this got to Um, it also so it it started making so much of a commotion there's so many things breaking all the time that um, the the authorities for the, uh, the Newark Housing, I think that's actually what they were called, the Newark Housing Authority, they actually sent some representatives to come in and put an end to all this, you know, by just going in and I don't even know what they expected to find, like booby traps, like levers and pulley systems. I don't know, but they were going to figure something out. And long story short, by the end of it, you know, they came in huffing and puffing and being all rude to um, Maybell and Ernie. And and by the end of it, they were genuinely convinced that there was a poltergeist. And the housing authorities actually brought an exorcist onto the payroll to try and help uh, alleviate the situation, which it did not. So, wow. Yeah, and then the, the housing authorities even talked to the paper and reporters about it. So this really started to blow up. Um, as these things tend to do. And um, Ernie was eventually Ernie was eventually brought um, to the attention of JB. Ryan, which is for anyone associated or uh, interested in paranormal phenomena. you definitely know that name. He ran for many years the parapsychology department of Duke University and is responsible for um, investigating a lot of the stories. You know, these stories would blow up on their own. Um, so they they it wasn't like Ryan was like the Warrens coming into a story and then giving it a bunch of media attention to kind of latch on to. Um, he was um, going and trying to find the interesting realities in or debunk the, the stories of these burgeoning media tales of poltergeists and paranormal activity. So... I think uh, J.B. Ryan, I don't know like a ton about his personal life or anything, but he seems like a really good dude. So he came, and in a lot of these stories, I think he, if I remember correctly, he went to see the Hermans as well, but if he didn't, he went to see a lot of these uh, prominent poltergeist cases of the era, and so it's important to note that um, there, was, there was a lot, of, like a ton of documentation about Ernie and his experiences, and... Before, See, the reason Ernie moved in with his grandmother was because he he had a very fateful history already. His father was a Golden Gloves boxer that had mafia ties in New Jersey. And so he was already running with shady people. And his mother apparently um, has had a history of some sort of mental illness um, or uh, a snap that led into that that she didn't come out of because... As the story goes, um, it was getting close to Christmas. Uh, Ernie's father, all he had left over in terms of money was a little bit for some Christmas presents for Ernie, but his mother, uh, Ernie's mother, was very sick and she needed to go to the hospital. Ernie's father did not want to bring her to the hospital because he wanted presents for the kid and uh, reportedly, by the end of the argument, said, you're just a doctor's bill to me. Um, And so... But she never made it to the doctor anyway because evidently she had a dream that her husband killed her. So she woke up in a dreamy stupor that was very trance like, reportedly, and asked her husband something like, What do you think of me now? I can't remember the exact one, but, uh, um, and just shot him point blank. And also the story goes that Ernie saw the death of the execution of his father in a reflection angled by two mirrors interesting right so that means that he saw in the reflection of a mirror the reflection of a mirror catching his father's death and for anyone that uh, understands the history of paranormal or esoteric like mystical phenomena mirrors are a very big thing about how if you back mirrors uh, up against each other you can start to create portals you know, that's something that um, what was that? not Get Out. It's that movie that Jordan Peele did about the funhouse mirrors. Um, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to fish for the title in my head, but it, it he was just playing on an old archetype there. Um, this whole idea, and it's the same thing as V.S. Ramachandran with his phantom limb thing. There's actual science behind this. It might not be as literal as opening up portals to the spirit realm, but we are dealing with um, non-physical, empirical phenomena. That's literally just tricks of the brain, tricks of our neurology, radically affecting our our existence and our our experiences and our, and our our experiences of our environment and our internal life as well. So, I f- I find that to be really fascinating. That that's a piece of um, Ernie Rivers. Origin. So there's some sort of um, insinuation that Ernie opened up a portal by witnessing that and was either forever attached to the spirit or the soul of his father in that way, haunted by it in that way, or uh, perhaps Ernie just simply opened up some sort of mimetic portal in his own brain, a gateway of symbolic regression and nervous system activity and and we'll build upon that a little more Uh, because this is something that um jb ryan and his uh, staff of researchers are interested in and they're very much looking into at this time uh, trying to flesh out this adolescent nervous system paranormal angle and that's essentially the conclusion that they come to although they've they do a lot of interesting philosophizing and data collecting and essentially like if you want uh some sort of climax to the end of jb ryan's investigation here he is very much the reason why we have this sort of idea of adolescence and nervous system energy but you know interestingly enough like it's not like jung or vs ramachandran were influenced by this guy uh not to my knowledge at least so there's intermingling disciplines of science here um, that are all starting to coalesce if you understand what I'm saying um, but yeah so but they didn't really help Ernie much and in fact Ernie was just kind of left to his own devices in terms him and his grandmother in terms of dealing with this and eventually as these things do people just are driven insane or they wait out the storm and things eventually die out and that's what uh, they, they did here. It just got to a point where, um, especially without any sort of legitimate climax or concrete answers, there's only so long a media circus can keep up. And so these things just kind of wane. And Ernie's left with less and less poltergeist activity, but still uh, phenomena all the same, and it's actually, um, his mom ends up breaking out of prison at one point, so that's got to be stressful for him, and I believe it's going on during this poltergeist stuff, because this happens for years anyway, um, and, yeah, so very traumatic childhood, and the, uh, the doctors note that Ernie has a very repressed anger, and he's not a violent kid, in fact, he's very tempered, but they can see that he's got so much welled up inside him that he's just constantly been a genuine victim um, of circumstance, of trauma, of, of uh, social inequality, on and on. Um, and he's just stewing, like it's become an integral part of his character. He doesn't know n- uh, how to not be fuming with anger and just seething on the inside uh, because of his constant lack of control and victimization. It seems like the only person in his life that really has it. Uh, it uh, some good things. Is actually, you know, like a guardian to him is his grandmother. And I mean, these scientists and people they don't really seem to be taking advantage of him either. But it's not like they're his like his grandmother. But um, so this this repression, the uh, the trauma, and then on top of it, the deep seated repression you're pushing it further and further down and compounding it and compacting it um and not to mention the whole adolescent thing in here this very much seems to very map uh, or to go tit for tat with the whole central nervous system and trauma angle and then when uh, ernie's puberty starts to taper and plateau things start to wane but actually interestingly in the case of ernie rivers it it's apparent or it's reported that it never fully went away and he, and he went on to have uh, some children and a wife and a regular life. Uh, so hopefully he enjoyed himself. It sounds like he did well enough, but even his wife um, is uh, reported to have experienced some uh, poltergeist like phenomena from time to time in the house. and Ernie was very dismissive of it always. just uh, go back to bed, whatever, don't worry about it. So kind of like a New Jersey project, um, 1960s, Sixth Sense, Haley Joel Osment sort of thing in a way. Very strange. Very strange. And very true story too. You know, you could be as skeptical as you want, but all of this is documented. I don't know what you how you want to re- refute that at this point. I truly don't. And I think I've done a pretty reasonable job giving some good stories and explaining why uh, the, the, the mechanics of paranormal activity um, with the root of this being the poltergeist obviously so um, and I know I mentioned Annalise Michelle a little bit we got a little time so we'll talk about her a little more uh, but we're going to have to bring her up in our demonology episode that is going to be a kind of part two to this uh, and I'm not sure when that'll be but that'll be before too long And Annalise Michelle is very very interesting <clears throat> and also very sad um because it plays into you know she was also experiencing sleep paralysis um and uh, the whole central nervous system angle very much builds into this whole possession angle because uh, she was also experiencing severe temporal lobe epilepsy um, and temporal lobe phenomena epilepsy included is something we talked about in the last episode and it's something we'll talk about more because the temporal lobe seems to be a strong focus for not only processing um, emotional data and like philosophizing in many ways, but it's just kind of like a core component of the mystical or religious or even just surrealist experience. Um, and I, I think that very much gets into, you know, just unexplainable phenomena at large. And um, Annalise Michel is another case where there's so much documentation uh, not only with local you know, friends and family uh, and, and clergy, but also um, uh, to doctors and neuroscientists and specialists. Unfortunately, not enough of them, but uh, she was going to some real specialists all the same. So we know a lot of concrete things going on in this situation. And um, Annalise's case is also something that went on for years, um, and I'll go ahead and um, and read a, a, a really concise bit written um, by a journalist of the Washington Post about uh, the court, like the whole unfoldment of, uh, of Annalise's um, exorcisms, because she eventually died. She was not saved from the exorcisms in the end. And it's very tragic. Uh, so, quote, according to court findings, she experienced her first epileptic attack in 1969 and by 1973 was suffering from depression and considering suicide. Under the influence of her demons, Michelle ripped the clothes off of her body, compulsively performed up to 400 squats a day, uh, crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days, ate spiders and coal, bit the head off a dead bird and licked her urine from the floor. Uh, by 1975, Michelle was asking for an exorcism. Uh, the Reverend Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz performed the rite 67 times over the first half of 1976 some of the sessions took up to four hours and 42 sessions were recorded on tape and you can still hear um, those tapes online to this day actually at least many of them I don't know about all so this is just the tip of the iceberg here there's so much more data to sink your teeth into here it's crazy so there's really something to be said for this whole central nervous system angle and this is very much the thrust of my books, um, or my book hunt manual and a little bit of dive manual too, but hunt manual especially. So if you're interested in this episode, definitely go check out that book. I also have some excerpts of it on my website if you want to check those out for free. Uh, but I mean, yeah, shameless self-advertising, but this is my show. And also I'm being serious. Like if you, I, I go in a lot, I go a lot further with these ideas in that book. And it is here that I invite you to recall some of the subject matter from the past episodes that um, we've already talked about here. I mean, really, every single one of them. You know, from the origins of uh, humans, you know, in that Manly P. Hall quote in the first episode, to uh, talking about the deviations in mysticism and spirituality, like the terrible deviations we get with um, Adolfo Constanzo and the narco-Satanists, as well as uh, Taylor Helzer and the Children of Thunder. And even in last episode, uh, we talk about uh, the human need for belief um, in general, but especially in an afterlife, and how that actually is integral to our adaptation process and um, a whole host of things. And it really ties into this whole nervous system thing. This is a quintessential part. Is th- This is the adaptation process in effect, it is human beings using the tools that they have to explain and process the world around them in the best ways they know how to. And it's not perfect science, but we can see the breadcrumbs of empirical sciences here. Uh, but the human experience isn't um, a cookie-cutter thing. It's a very shake up kaleidoscope and just see what comes out it will it's the same kaleidoscope but it's a different picture every time and even with these cult leaders we can see that there is some weird malfunction or deviation of their mentality and essentially um, their nervous system how their body is geared towards stress and trauma and how they engage with stress and trauma and integrate those things or like their lack of integration so um, and also the dr seuss midnight paintings that we talked about in the last episode talk about processing um, nervous system tension and even potentially trauma And this is empirical where this is the trail of breadcrumbs in effect. Um, And again, if you didn't go check out those Dr. Seuss Midnight paintings, you really should go do that. Um, But I guess, you know, this is going to wrap it up for this episode. I appreciate anybody listening. Um, Peruvians represent. You were doing so good earlier and now I'm dropping in your charts. Disappointment. (laughs) No, joking, joking. I appreciate anybody listening and listen whenever you want, you know. Um, check out Dive Manual, Hunt Manual, my website divemind.net, uh, the UFO documentary from UAP to DMT. Um, what else? I think that's pretty much it, folks. Next episode is going to be, uh, it's going to be the week of 420 cannabis holiday, so it's going to be a drug themed episode. I'm very excited for it. I hope you are too. Uh, after that. I may take like a week break. Uh, I'm going to be getting some guests before too long. I got some really good stuff cooking that I'm very excited about. Um, collaborations with other people. But those things take a little bit of time. And right now, um, we're we're working out some kinks and things. And, and that stuff will be right around the corner. So if you see me taking a break uh, for a week, rest assured, I'll be back. And uh, I'll be coming out swinging. And those breaks will be rare too. I do enjoy doing this. So... The breaks will only be when I really have to, so just a little bit of a heads up there. Again, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. This is The Fringe FM. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good night. Or day, or whatever. Have a good rest of your waking bit until you sleep. Peace.
1: doing the will of our true self, we are inevitably doing the will of the universe. In magic, these are seen as indistinguishable. That every human soul is in fact one human soul. It is the soul of the universe itself, and as long as you are doing the will of the universe, then it is impossible to do anything wrong.